Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, happy Father's Day. I, I just say this. This is the last of the programs that we're going to be doing together. I, I kind of feel like, like I've made a lot of friends here. I hope that some of the things that have occurred here, some of the sparks that have flown between us this weekend, I hope that you will take it back to your communities. Because in reality, our people need it. Our nation, as the Prophet said, are dying for a lack of knowledge. We spent a considerable amount of time discussing a nagging problem, a very serious problem, confronting our people today, the effort on the part of the church to evangelize the Jewish people, to convert them to the Christian faith. Many of you here were bewildered by this effort, and some of you asked the nagging question, why, why now, why them, and most importantly, why us? It is essential that you understand some fundamental issues that lie here. Evangelical Christians are absolutely fascinated with a subject called eschatology. Now, eschatology is a very fancy-schmancy SAT word, which means the study of the end times, the study of achris hayamim, what will occur at the end of days. If you go into Christian bookstores, there are entire sections set aside just on this apocalyptic topic. And it's really not their texts that ignite the interest as much as it's our text. You must know this. There are fascinating chapters in the prophets that describe immediately before the coming of the Messiah, there's going to be a war. Now you should know this and store this and keep this with you as long as you live. Prophecy is always irrational. I'm going to say that again. Prophecy is always irrational. If the prophets would have declared something and we could expect that to occur, so they were simply forecasting. When someone gets up on CNN and Stan says that tomorrow it's going to be raining, and the next day snowing, and the next day raining, and it's going to be cold. What happened to the, to the global warming? Nobody knows for sure what happened to that, right? So they are not stating that they are foretelling with some kind of prophecy. They are simply extrapolating from information, satellite information, information provided by the government. And from that information, they're able to, to then project what will happen in the future. Prophets did not speak that way. They said things that one would have never guessed. For example, if I would tell you that when the elections come, the Lord told me that the, when the elections are present, it's are there any healthy people here at all? <laughs> the whole weekend is hucking and hucking and hucking and hucking. There's not one healthy Jew in the whole building here. Every Jew. All right. All right. If I would tell you that in the next election the Lord told me that George W. Bush 
will be re-elected for a second term, his presidency. Oh, yeah, brach, right? <laughs> so would you say, and, and it actually occurs, and it actually unfolds, would you say that I was a big prophet? No, that's silly. Why? Because it looks like he's doing very well in the polls, and he looks like that he, there's no Democrat that's really, really coming out and really, you know, in, you know enticing. It's just they're all the people. So therefore, it looks like I just looked at the situation in front of me. And I, but let's say I would say something else. The Lord told me this. You wouldn't believe what's going to happen. The Lord came to me this morning, and he said to me that George W. Bush is going to actually declare that he is removing himself from, as a presidential candidate for 2004, and some other Republican portion is going to have to be pulled instead. Why did he decide at the last moment to not run? Because he and Laura decided that they're going to convert to Judaism. Wait. Wait, wait. Not just any Judaism. And not just any conversion. They're going to become very Hasidic. He's going to, they're going to convert by somebody in Meisharim. He's going to wear a big shrimel on his head. And Lord's going to walk around with a big shaitalad. And, okay, and that's what the Lord told me. Now, precious brothers, <laughs> if it, if it taka happens, that it's come t- at the end of September, flash bulletin, CNN, <laughs> right? Bush is re- re- pulling himself, schlepping himself out, and McCain is taking his place, and so on and so forth. And in fact, he's running on, we see that Lord is running on with the Sheikh Latechel and on top over there. So you know that in all likelihood, God spoke to me. Why? Because there's nothing possible. A man who declared June 14th as Jesus Christ Day. Is not likely <laughs> is not likely to be converting to the Jewish faith anytime soon. That's the way the prophet spoke. The bra- prophet Ezekiel describes in chapter 15. He says that one day the Jewish people will be exiled from the land of Israel. They'll be gone completely. They'll be spread from one end of the world to the other. And yet somehow, before the coming of the Messiah, there will be a bulk of Jews who are in the Holy Land. And when the Jews are in the land of Israel, nations that will come to attack Israel, why? What possible reason would cause a guy to attack a Jew? Get this. <laughs> How could that be? <laughs> That's not the part that makes a prophecy. That's not the irrational part. Oh, the status of Jerusalem... Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 10 and 11, and it says there that when you will leave your borders naked and reduce, you remove your walls, then the nations will come. They'll come from due east, from Persia, and from the north. And this will be a remarkable event where the Jewish people will be given tremendous blessings and will win that war, and that war will trigger the Messianic age. Are we living in that time? You go into Christian bookstores, there are entire sections set aside just on this apocalypse topic. There are whole now book series, novels, of suddenly, you know, people suddenly disappear because they're raptured up and suddenly all the Jews have to deal with the fact that Jesus made a second coming. What does this have to do with our subject? How could this possibly relate to the topic we're, we're, we're confronting? At the end of the book of Matthew, it's Matthew chapter 23, it's Matthew 23, verse 39. The very last verse of a very difficult chapter to read. I've got to tell you this. I was once lecturing in Brooklyn, big audience, and after the lecture, and then after I took questions from the audience, so after I take questions, people usually come over to me personally to ask me a question. You'll watch after, you'll see. (coughs) (laughs) 
So it turned out, my, I was lecturing, and as it turned out, my fifth grade Rebbe, I didn't know, Rabbi Frankel, happened to be in the audience. I had no clue he was there, and he came over to me, he walked over to me after my program, same face, just a white beard, and he said to me, you know, Tovia, if you would have known your Chumash like you know the New Testament... <laughs> have been just fine. All right. Moving right along. Okay. Matthew 23, verse 39. I say it's a difficult chapter because it's a deeply anti-Semitic chapter. It's very painful to read, even by New Testament standards. It's the one where the Jewish people are literally sliced to pieces by Jesus. And horrible things are said about our nation, and these ideas would ultimately fill the minds and souls of Europeans, of Christians throughout history and untold losses, untold numbers of members of our people were destroyed because these words had produced a nations that saw the Jewish people as undimensioned, as subhuman. But the very last verse is very interesting. When Jesus says these words, I will not return unless you say, blesses he that comes in the name of the Lord. Baruch Haba, B'Shem Hashem. Because when Jesus is making this statement, he is speaking to a Jewish audience, the church historically understands this to mean one thing. What Jesus is actually saying is, I cannot make my second coming unless the Jewish people are first converted to Christianity. These evangelical Christians also believe that Jesus' second coming is absolutely imminent. They believe, in fact, that prob- many believe that the year 2007 is a very big year for Jesus' second coming. Jerry Falwell said a while back, he said at a, br- a prayer breakfast, he said that he believes that the Antichrist is a Jew. You remember that? There was a big uproar. He said it, and he believes everyone heard that. And all the Jews were insulted. What do you mean the Antichrist is a Jew? We'll take them aside, but we don't want to be the Antichrist. Everybody got a little offended. But he said 2007, 40 years after the liberation of Jerusalem, some 70 years after the, basically, if the beginnings of the Shoah. And of course, according to Luke's timing, according to Luke's timing, being that Jesus, according to Luke, was born at the time, Serenus, the governor of Syria, brought his census to the Roman Empire for taxation purposes. We know that was in the year 6 CE. So therefore, according to Luke, Jesus would have been born, the year 2000 be really the year 2007. This is a big time. Incidentally, Matthew disagrees with this, and you should know that because we discussed it yesterday. According to Matthew, Jesus was alive when Herod the Great was alive. Does anyone know what year Herod the Great died in? Anybody? Herod the Great died in the year... It's like an auction broke out here, you notice that? (laughs) Who said four? You're absolutely correct. Herod the Great died in the year 4 BCE. Jesus was still a child, a baby, a toddler when Herod was alive. So therefore the estimate is, according to Matthew, get this, according to Matthew, Jesus was born in the year 6 BCE. Always found it interesting that according to Matthew, Jesus was born six years before Christ, but that's a... (laughs) (sighs) This, we are living in very, very strange times. Therefore, the Jews must be converted before then in order to enable Jesus to return. Gentlemen, you are holding up the show. (laughs) For some crazy reason, Jews love it when I say that. Why? 
Because it makes no difference what the consequences are. They just love to be. Jews love it when the whole world dings it with us. They like that. People ask me all the time. The big, one of the number one, what do they ask? One of the number one questions is, this Pope seems to be a nice fellow, but he has Parkinson's disease. People are counting his days, how much time left. And they wonder who is going to be the next Pope. And who do people think might be the next Pope? The, the Jew, exactly. I know, my, I know my customers. They think that Cardinal Lustiger, who is the Cardinal of the Bishop of Paris, he might be, he's a Jew, so maybe he'll be the next Pope. Now, I don't know if this is going to happen. Personally, I don't think it's likely that a Jesuit's going to be the next Pope. However, if, if Lustiger does become the next Pope, I promise you, every Jew is going to be walking around like this. See that? One of our boys, he made it to the top of his field. Give a look. <laughs> Jews love it that the whole world dings it. Ah, it's a big thing. That's not important. Someone mentioned Monica Lewinsky. When the whole thing was going on, this whole thing, everybody see that? One of our girls. Look at that. She made it to the top of her field. Take it over. I remember I was speaking in, um, speaking in El Paso, Texas. El Paso, Texas. El Paso, Texas. So I'll never forget this. I, El Paso, I had never been to El Paso. If you've ever been there, it looks like a Mars landing. It's not... It's not Dallas or Houston, like it's flat. You know, there's really very unremarkable scenery. You know, you can drive from San Antonio to Houston for whatever, 200 miles. You see nothing, it's just flat land. You could leave, you know, you just push the car and let it roll. But in, in El Paso, this very strange, there's of course an Air Force base here, but rocks jutting out. It's a very strange place. And I remember I have a tradition that whenever I go and I fly somewhere, so I try to, I call my mother, call my mother from the airport just to say, Mom, you know, I'm going here. So I remember this morning, I'm calling her from Newark Airport. There's no direct flight. I had a change in Houston with Continental. So I call, Mom, hi, I'm here at Newark Airport. Tovia, where are you going? Mom, I'm going to El Paso, Texas. So what does she respond? You mean there are Jews in El Paso, Texas? <laughs> I, saw, I make it like I'm a big knocker. I said, what are you talking about? There are 5,000 Jews in El Paso, Texas. My mother then reminded me there were more Jews in her apartment building. <laughs> so it was a weekend program. Conservative congregation there had a great time. Oh, bless mothers. Had a great time of the weekend, but I, I got to meet a lot of evangelicals that were there. One fellow, he tried so hard to be nice, but he said, he said, please don't be offended. He coached it. He's a pastor. Please don't be offended by what I'm about to say, but... <laughs> so here it comes, right? Oh, you get, get, out the, get out the Kevlar, right? All right. He said, how many, he asked, how many Jews are there in the whole world? How many? So I said, well, it's hard to say exactly, but the estimates run roughly some 12, maybe 13 million Jews. So he asked, how many Christians are there in the world? How many Christians? So I said, the figures are also not exact on that number, but there's roughly somewhere 2.2 billion Christians in the world. He said, let me see if I got this right. <laughs> you know where this one's going, right? Yeah. Isn't it? He said, Rabbi, please. But isn't it a little tad arrogant for you to insist that 12 million people are right and the whole world, one-third of the world's population, 2 billion people are wrong? How could you believe that? 
So, you know how Jews always answer a question with a question. I asked them, just tell me this, and this will seem like it's not relevant, but it will become very relevant. Let me just a question. How is it that all these billions of Christians, millions of Christians throughout history, slaughtered, maimed, molested, exiled, killed Jewish people? So he said to me, Rabbi, those weren't real Christian. A real Christian loves the Jews. How many real Christians are there? Maybe 18. <laughs> so, I said, let me see if I get this right. Let me see if I get this right. <laughs> when you need the numbers, when the numbers give you support for your theology, then schlep them in, give a look, two billion, two billion Christians. But the moment they become a theological liability, how many real Christians are there because everyone was killing us? The only two, there's one in Nebraska, another Utah, that's the end. <laughs> of course, it runs both ways. They schlep it in, they schlep it out, they, whatever they want, it's in, it's out. I, um, of course, there's the prophecy, as you talk about irrational, it says, it's Pasha's Veschanan, so holy, so delicious. The Torah says, you talk about irrational, it says, Scripture says that one day the nations of the world will hate you, they'll exile you, you'll be, be few in number. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 27. Therefore, if you belong to a religion that comprises one third of the world's population, check your theology you, have, you are a tiny number Deuteronomy 7, 7 I didn't cast my love upon you because you're the most numerous you're the fewest of all the nations that's the Torah which you believe is the word of God and scripture says yet the world will look at your Torah and say what a great law this is and they will take their ideas of God throw them away and replace them with yours highly irrational now we have you know when black men and women were ripped away from the African continent and brought here, they came with pagan religions, pantheistic religions, African, native African religions. But because they were a conquered people, so the conquerors, the white man, said, get rid of your African paganism and replace it with Christianity. And ultimately, African Americans will become a very devout Christian segment of the population. Because the way it works in history is that when a people are subjugated and taken over by another people, they have to abandon their ideas of God. The Brazilians, when they were, when the Indians in Brazil, in South America, when missionaries came from, from Europe, so they couldn't hang on to their pagan ways. So Brazil became the largest Roman Catholic country in the world. Argentina and so on, all these countries became Christian. Mexico overnight became Christian because they were subjugated by the Europeans. Terry says, although this is the case for every other nation not with you. When you'll be conquered, they, the conqueror, will take their ideas of God, throw them away and replace them with yours. Who could have known that? Yet you'll remain few in number. You're not going to be that you'll be so many in the world that like the, maybe groups like the Chinese, will be so many of you that sort of your ideas will somehow, no, you'll be a very tiny people. Maybe you'll be so loved by the nations, they'll, be so, they'll like you so much that that's why the one who adopts your ways know they're going to hate your guts. And now we look back and say, you know, there's a lot at stake, and there's a book right behind there, and kind of question, like, who could have authored it? What are the origins? Maimonides asks the question, something very strange. Something, he looks at a phenomena in, in history, and he notices that the trigger mechanism when the nations will begin to take on Judaism-based religions occur at the time, essentially, of the destruction of the Second Temple.
Maimonides notices that if you look at the religions that predate the destruction of the Second Temple, the world religions, they are essentially very dissimilar to Judaism. Okay? In college, you took world religions, you studied Hinduism, then Buddhism. There's almost no relationship between them. There are on the circumference, on the periphery, there are similarities, but not in the essential theology. In the essential theology of Buddhism, that model of deity is entirely different than Western. Yet, if we look at the world after the destruction of the Second Temple, not only are the world religions similar to Judaism, but they're actually based on Judaism. How could this be? What's going on? So what does he say? Maimonides explains a fundamental understanding of the Christian faith from the Jewish people, from the position of the Jewish people. He says this. There is a remarkable prophecy, in fact, the most important messianic prophecy is the universal knowledge of God. In, in essence, all the other prophecies that are hinged into the messianic age are a subset of this, that when the Messiah comes, the whole world will know the truth. It says in Zechariah and Zechariah chapter 8, the last verse, verse 23, it says that when Mashiach comes, you're walking around with a t-shirt now, that won't work. When the Messiah comes, you have to have a long gerekel, a long coat. Why? Because ten Gentiles are going to grab your shirt and they're going to say, take us with you because now we know God is with you. The prophecy is in the Christian Bible. Remember, you know, Marriott Hotel, Shlep out the night table. Zechariah 8.23, King James and ten Gentiles of different languages will grab the shirt of a Jew and say, take us with you, now we know as God as you. Incidentally, if we're wrong about Jesus, why are they coming to us? We're the last people they should be coming to. It should say that at the end of days, the Jews should be running to a Gentile and say, all right, you know, now, you know I could have had a V8, now you show me what the truth is. And you show me, show me Santa Claus and Trinity and raptures and all these things, because I didn't learn that in Yeshiva. They should be filled with such prophecies. But no, all these texts which describe the end time, it will be the Gentiles, Jeremiah chapter 16, 19, 20, powerful texts. The Gentiles will come unto the Jewish people and say, and they will immediately know they made a mistake and they'll come to the Jews. We won't, God forbid, harm them. On the contrary, we will finally be restored for our rightful place among the nations. We will become their rabbi. Messianic age means the world comes to its state of perfection and each role is played out as it's to be. We become the priests of the world. You sing it in shul. You sing it over and over, right? V'nehemar v'hoyo Hashem l'melech al kol ha'oret What is that, a signal to fold up your talus? Are these jokes too complicated for this section here? Okay, good. What does it mean? What does that mean? What do these signals mean? The, what, are these pro, what does this mean? It means you listen to your words, you're saying it, it's a beautiful song, it's a German tune. In fact, by the way, the reason why we sing Olenu is because the, the Christians force us to. You should just, oh, what, what? You say, no, I'll tell you that later. But the reason you sing it is because in Germany, Jews were forced to sing it because it was a verse that was expunged from the Olenu because it was regarded as anti-Christian. There's a verse, For they worship, they pray to and worship, um, they, they worship emptiness and vanity. 
and they pray to a God that can't help them. Why does it start with Ba'anachnu? It's strange, cause, but we, it's a contrast, but we, now what the church says, the word Varik is Gematria, that's the numerical value of the word, is the exact same of Yeshu. So therefore, when we're saying Varik, we're really thinking Jesus. And this was ultimately in Germany in 1530, Anton Margarita, another apostate, pushed this baby through, and ultimately the church had their people in the synagogues, the Germans had to sing it out loud, making sure that Jews actually did not say that offensive verse. And then once they, they didn't do it like you, they normally, that was the end of the song, you guys keep going. But the way it really worked was that it stopped. After you passed the verse, they knew that you didn't say it, so then, they, so then it was okay, you could say there is, you could say it to yourself. The prophecy, getting back, the prophecy is that when the Messiah comes, there will be a universal knowledge of God. And the question is, how could such a thing occur? How is it possible that when the Messiah comes, that the whole world will instantly recognize their error, and they will immediately come to the Jews? How will they know it? So therefore, what does the Almighty do? He fills the world with very strange, odd religions that are Judaism-based, ideas where there is a one-God system, like Judaism, or at least akin to Judaism in some way, Islam more than Christianity. They have basic concepts of a Messiah, that there is such a figure that will come at the end of days. There is a concept that there are mitzvot, that there are somehow commandments. Those commandments, their savior, their demigod, their prophet, absolved them from, they no longer have to keep it. And this way, when the Mashiach comes, they will instantly recognize their error. Now, in order to explain this, you must know this kindalach. And if you don't know this, you really are, you can't penetrate this issue. There are certain postulates, whenever you discuss the Jewish-Christian debate, there are certain postulates in place that if you don't know them, and you, might, you might as well go home, you cannot understand, you can't grasp this issue. By the way, what does a postulate mean? A postulate is a what? It's an axiom. It's a special kind. It's a given. And the word given is a very important word here. This is 10th grade, right? It's given. It means don't argue with the teacher. First day geometry, guys, you learned your postulates, right? I'm still recovering from this, right? First day, you had to learn, I don't remember what it was, like, uh, whatever, how many there were these postulates. Some math teachers here? How many? Well, A school. Okay, that's a postulate. Postulates are, are, are statements of fact that are so self-evident, they require no evidence whatsoever. You don't, they don't require no support. No proof necessary. And it's these postulates that ultimately become the foundation for the theorems. The theorems are not self-evident. Two sides of a triangle equal, the opposite angles are equal. That's not self-evident. And then, so you had to show, using a series of postulates, which you agreed on on day one, that required no evidence, and you remember you had to line it up properly, come to your conclusion, and you always had to show the work. The work was always worth another two points on the regions, or whatever it was, right? That's how it was. A postulate means that these are issues that require no evidence. Most of it makes sense. Who is going to argue with the teacher, right? The sum total of everything to its total is equal. See what's true? Then there was a negative. It's not equal, so it's not good enough. Whenever you deal with the Jewish-Christian debate, there are certain postulates, there are certain axioms which, which all Jews and Christians agree on. And you, it is important. We can't go through all of them. 
but it's important that you have a grasp of what they are so you can penetrate the subject. Incidentally, I just should tell you that what I'm about to say is definitely not politically correct. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> like up till now, it's been a... Okay. <laughs> Finally, when he came here for the whole weekend... Finally, finally, I can come to this moment. What I'm saying now is definitely not nice. Definitely, definitely not nice. It's not nice, okay? But, when you're pursuing truth, when you want to know what the facts are, sometimes you can't always have, it can't always be schmaltz, it can't always be, right? If you go to the doctor, right? Person goes to the doctor now. Person goes to a doctor's office, Right, you feel something that is bothering you, schlepped, something is bothering you, you all understand this. Say, so go to a doctor, so the doctor will ask you to do things in his office that if anybody else would dare ask you to do them, you'd call the police immediately, right? It's a fact. I mean, you call it SWAT teams. Well, you go dance around your underwear for 10 minutes, I'm not, right? And then he has a chutzpah to charge you for this, right? And then they go, like, what is with this thing? Then they tell you they lay down on a deli paper they unroll over there. That's true. I feel like a pastrami sandwich. I'm waiting for a kugel and a kosel and a soda. Like they're like this. Very vulnerable state. So, why would anyone put up with such a humiliating experience? We're standing there. Every code of conduct, every code of normalcy, every, every normal way people interact goes in the garbage can in the doctor's office. All the rules of interaction are finished. They ignore them all. Because when you come, God forbid, if somebody goes to the doctor and something hurts you, you're wondering, is something wrong? I feel pain. I feel this. All you care about is one thing, that he should diagnose you properly and should give you the right pill, the right refuel. Hopefully it's just a pill, it'll be nothing, or it'll be, I just had a little, a little gas, it was nothing, and then he'll send you home and everything's fine, that's all we care about, we're only interested in the truth. So therefore, you can be politically incorrect, meaning things that are not so nice, they can go on in the doctor's office. And in fact, our kind of outrageous things take place in the doctor's office. Yeah. So, this is, we are interested in truth, so therefore we have to confront a couple of postulates that no Christian would disagree with. For example, every Christian would agree while, now listen very carefully, while it is possible for the Jewish scriptures to be true and the Christian Bible false, it is impossible for the Christian Bible to be the truth and the Jewish scriptures to be false. That can't be. I'll repeat that a little differently. It is possible, logically, it is possible that Jeremiah and Isaiah are true, along with Deuteronomy and Leviticus, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not a reliable record of history. It is impossible, logically impossible, for the book of Ephesians and Galatians to be true, while the book of Ezekiel and Daniel false. Could anyone tell me why that is the case? Why is that true? Exactly correct. Because the, because the Christian Bible seeks to prove itself from the Jewish scriptures, it looks to the Jewish scriptures, and we talked about this yesterday, especially the book of Matthew, looks to support itself from the books, from books like Isaiah and Jeremiah. And because the works of like Romans 
seek to prove the veracity of Christian theology on books like Psalms. So therefore, it is impossible for the book of Psalms to be false and the book of Galatians to be true. Romans to be true. That can't be. Let's do another postulate. Postulate two. It's like the laws of thermodynamics. All Christians would agree that one minute before Jesus was born, there were many religions in the world. There were many. However, not all of them were true. Only one religion was true, and that religion is what? Judaism. By the way, they would say not just any. There were then Josephus accounts for six major movements within the Jewish faith, right? The Pharisees, Sadducees, and so on. Then there were these zealots movement, the Essenes. But of these movements, it would only be the classical Judaism, the Pharisaic Judaism was true. But the moment Jesus was born, so now that truth has been transferred to the church. The believers in Jesus are now the ones who hold the truth. But a moment before Jesus, there was only one true religion, and that religion was Judaism. And over and over again, I alluded to this before, over and over again I explained to you that in fact, that there are, throughout the Christian Bible, there are many references to the truth and veracity of Jewish information. In John chapter 4, when the Samaritan woman approaches Jesus and says, where is the holy city? Is it Mount Gerizim, like my fathers say, or is it Jerusalem? So he says, salvation is of the Jews. The Jews, your fathers don't know. It's the Jews that know. In fact, I said to you, Matthew 23 was a disturbing chapter, and it is. But it begins with a statement that I alluded to earlier. It begins, Matthew 23, verse 1 is, The Pharisees and scribes sit in Moses' seat. And therefore, whatever they tell you must follow. Incidentally, it continues to do as they say, but don't do as they do. That's where the line comes from, from that verse. Because they're hypocrites and vipers, and it goes on terrible, terrible things. They walk around with their white phylacteries, saying, look how religious they am, and so on. And then there's these, the whole, it just sit there, and you just... Oh my God, you know, it's like, you know, it's like reading, you know, the UN reports on Israel, you know, just very, becomes very, very nasty and you go, you just, you feel it and you could feel how these ideas had so burnt into Christian, Christian mindset. According to Christian theology, incidentally, it wasn't really technically one minute before Jesus was born, it was technically one minute before the crucifixion. Up until the crucifixion, only Judaism was true. And a moment after the crucifixion, so then it was transferred to the church. And now salvation is no longer gained by the law, which no one really could keep in the first place. But now salvation is only given through grace, only by those who believe in Jesus. If you don't believe in Jesus, you're lost. Mark 16, verse 16, right? Mark 16, the New Testament says that if you believe it and you're baptized, you're saved. And if you believe it not, you're damned. There is no hope for you outside of the cross. Although I remember when Pat Robinson was running for president in the election of, what, was it, what year was it, 88? 88. He was running to head the Republican Party. He was on Ted Koppel's nightline. And they asked the tape, now he's a presidential candidate, right? Looking to head the Republican Party. So naturally, you know, he, had to, he can't now speak just morning and Christian. So Ted Koppel asked him a sharp question. Do you believe that all the Jews are going to hell? He asked him a question. And it's a fair question. The pre- people should know what their president thinks about roughly, you know, roughly six million Jews, you know, five, six million Jews living in the United States. So he said, well, no. He said, if the Jews keep the law perfectly without ever sinning, so they can be saved through the Mosaic law. But in Christian theology, that's absolutely impossible. In Christianity, all 
man is sinful. He can do nothing to save himself from damnation. He has been infected with the original sin. So therefore, one moment before the crucifixion, Judaism was true. And therefore, a sub a sub-axiom of this postulate is this. All Christians would therefore agree, if one minute before Jesus, only faith in the world that was true was Judaism, then all Christians would agree that if they are wrong about Jesus, if Jesus is not the Messiah, who has the truth? Jews. And not all Jews, by the way. Some two, three million Jews who are, who are involved in Jewish life. And, you know, the, the faithful of the Jewish people. That's what they would say. Christians would admit that if they're wrong about Jesus, that only Judaism, Judaism is the true religion. Now let's go back to the rabbinic understanding of the function of Christianity in the world. God fills the world, Maimonides says. This is, by the way, much of this text has been expunged by the church and restored. I've given you a page of it so that you can have it and see the whole text inside if you want. But Maimonides says that God fills the world with religions that have a basic concept of one God, a basic notion of mitzvot, and an a kind of an idea of a Messiah. But they think that their Savior, their leader, absolves them of it. What happens then when the true Mashiach comes? What occurs, when, what occurs to the world when the Messiah comes and it's not Jesus? And his name instead is Moshe Hershkowitz? If his name is Yussel Finkelstein? So immediately all the Gentiles will know that immediately that it was... Immediately that it's Judaism, they turn to the Jews and say, okay, now you teach us about God. These are religions that make it possible for the non-Jewish world, and that is the function of these world religions, to prepare the world for the coming of Mashiach. In fact, that is why, if you notice, that these world religions begin to emerge at the destruction of the Second Temple. Because one of the very important messianic prophecies, one of the events that will occur in the messianic age, is the rebuilding of a destroyed temple. Of course, which goes to the question, if the temple had to be destroyed when the Messiah comes so he can build it, what was Jesus doing coming in the year 1 through 30? There was still a temple standing so the function is, that's why the Medrash says that on the day the temple was destroyed, the Messiah was born. Very famous tradition, Messiah would be born, his birthday would be Tisha B'Av. That from the moment of despair, from the time of despair, hope is born. At that point, this time the second temple was destroyed, the potential for the Messiah can come at any moment. And therefore, suddenly you have the emergence of Christianity, world religions that say, look... We, we believe that Jesus is our final savior, but if we are wrong about this, then Judaism is true. We detest Judaism because it is a rival. We detest Judaism because they were ultimately the enemies of Christ. But the moment we find out we're wrong, so the Christians will then grab onto the Jew. That's why the world is given all these concepts. There is one thing, however, that the nations cannot have. And although they can be given a one-God concept, our sages tell us, although they can be given mitzvot, the idea of mitzvot, which they feel they are now absolved from, the one thing they can't have is Shabbos. Why? Because in Jewish law, it is forbidden for a Gentile to keep Shabbos. A gen- Shabbos, he sang it in Shul, Shabbos is, Beini uvein b'nei Yisroel What does that mean? You sing it every Shabbos. That Shabbos is only between God and Israel, and it's not for the nations of the world. In fact, 
in a, in a conversion, a rabbi will usually tell the potential convert that until the moment they actually go into the mikvah, although they should try to keep Shabbos as best they can because they actually have to practice for Shabbat, but the halacha is in Shulchan Aruch that the potential convert, up until the moment of his conversion, may not keep a Shabbos perfectly and is sent into a room at some point on Shabbos to take a match and to light it, to violate the Shabbos somehow, because he's still not a convert. Shabbos is not for the nations of the world. It's a gift only for Jewish people, and we are the, test, we are the testifiers to the fact that God created the world in six days and rested on seventh. So what does the Almighty do in Jewish tradition? He says, okay, because it's only for the Jewish people, we're going to move Christianity to Sunday, Islam to Friday, Shabbos is set aside just for the Jewish people. And... The words are, of course, how foolish is the nation that the very foundations of the world were moved so that Shabbos would be for us alone. And what, what do we do? You know, we do our own thing on Shabbos. We, we, we squander the great gift of Shabbos. We throw it away. That was Shabbos was put aside for you. And in fact, throughout history, throughout history, there has always been great pressures because it's really illogical. Christians don't hold that the Shabbos is Sunday. They don't hold that the seventh day is on Sunday and that's why they keep Sunday. They moved to Sunday because that's a resurrection day. And as Rome became anti-Semitic, especially after the Bar Kokhba revolt in the second century, so therefore they didn't want to celebrate on the day that the Jews did, so they moved to Sunday. But they know that Sunday is Yom Rishon, it's not Yom Shvi. And there's always been pressure in the church to somehow bring it back to Saturday. There's been, for instance, Sabbatean movements, they're called. We have today a very flourishing Seventh-day Adventist who seek to demonstrate to Christendom, hey, get it back from Sunday, put it back on, on Saturday. Yet according to our tradition, this day has been set aside just for the Jewish people. It's not for the church. So therefore, we cannot have the non-Jewish world celebrating on on Shabbat. I have a, a dear friend of mine who lives in Fairfax, Virginia, employed by the federal government. He works for the Secret Service of the United States. This is not a big Jewish field. <laughs> he does not protect the president, nor does he protect his family. He protects the currency of the United States. He trains agents in Washington how to easily and immediately detect fake money. I've lectured in that congregation many times. I've done my role play program for their kids many times over. And naturally, I'm fascinated with how do they train agents to be able to immediately detect fake money. And I said to them, you must have these agents, must, you must have quite a collection of fake money that the agents have to study, that you've confiscated over the years, and they become experts in counterfeit money so that they can detect it immediately. So he said, first of all, stop screaming. <laughs> so he said, actually... <laughs> Actually, that's not the way we do it. Listen to how brilliant these people are. He said that the way we train our agents how to detect counterfeit currency is we give them real money. 
We take real U.S. cars and we put them in your hands. We wanted to touch it, we wanted to feel it. I don't know if you were this. I didn't know it. Real American currency is printed on paper. There is no other paper like in the world. Our government, which understands that our money is the standard economic currency standard of the world, make sure that no other government, you go to Canada, Israel, you touch the bill, it feels different. Not only that, they're in the bill's engravings. Now, I knew they were engravings, but not like this. In the bill, there are engravings by the number of fine line engravings, even in the picture. Even in the picture, by the shape, by the guiding, you would not what's going on in there. They have, they have fibers in the bills, in sconce, blue, red, schmutz. It's in the bill. <laughs> and they know what it looks like, what color it is, where it's located. They have shifting watermarks. Who would know that? They tilt the bill to different colors. It changes from blue to black. And the agents essentially learn everything there is to know about real money. Do you know why? Because you take an agent with that kind of training and you dare try to put a count of it in his hand, he will know it immediately. My precious brothers, what am I saying to you? Yiddish Abrida. What am I, what's the, what's the message here? Am I saying to you that the way, look, let's, let's not, let's be, let's be honest, let's be open here. You're here, you know, the Federation of Jewish Men's Clubs, I've been with the clubs many years. They don't get involved in all these. They get involved, as I said to you, in some of the most serious issues that confront the Jewish people. Shoah, the church, big issues. Kids who are challenged emotionally, who need a Camp Ramah. It's very important what you're doing. But you are the most, let's be frank, you are among the most committed to Jewish life in your communities. What is the answer when you go back? We're not, not, we're not worried about you personally, but what's the, what, what's the answer when we go back? Maybe in order to protect our fellow Jews in our synagogue in Sharon in Boston, maybe they should be, maybe we should train them, they should move the New Testament backwards and forwards, the Quran upside down, the Bhagavad Gita like this, the Book of Mormon like this, and the, the Urantia like this, you're wasting your time. You want to protect your people, your community, your brothers and sisters, teach them the real thing. Teach them Judaism. Teach them Torah. If they know Judaism, if they know it properly, no missionary can touch them. No assimilationist can rob them of their heritage. No one who seeks to take away their faith will succeed because you've inspired them. You have that responsibility, that mandate. I will work with each and every one of you to help you reach out to your community because our people need it desperately. And I also say to you this, that I'm... I am deeply honored that you have asked me to be your speaker this weekend. I have a lot of new friends, friend, and I thank you. Thank you very much. I, uh, you have a thank you. I, thank you. We have a few minutes left, so we're going to open that for questions. One timeline again about the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus. I'm terribly confused. Was he born in the year zero and then died at 28 years old, or 28 BCE and then died at six? Yeah, there were just a little point. There, there is no year zero, just to clear that up. That's just to clear that up. And by the way, in the year one, there was no such thing as the year one. This is a much later system. People go, oh, it's one. We gave a look at that. <laughs> what the hell? What the hell happened there? That kind of went real quickly. That year minus one was a real doozy, huh? Market didn't do so well. Anyone know, incidentally, where the chronology that we currently have? This is the year 2003. Who came up with that? Any, 
No. no, Julian, the Julian calendar was an adjustment to the calendar before. The non-Jewish world never had an accurate calendar. Even today, sometimes in New Year's, they announce it. New Year's, they're going to have the bull dropping in New York, and they, they warn you that they're adding an extra second to the year. Why? Because even the secular calendars don't have it exact. When it came to the Julian calendar, going back 2,000 years ago, they were off by 90 days, which had to be intercalated in order to correct it, because you know, you're having January coming out in the middle of the, middle of the summer in, on, in this side of the equator. That was a major problem. The person who came up with the system we use now was a 6th century monk, very important, and he actually came fairly close. His name is Danasius Exiguus, which in Latin means Danny the Dwarf. I have no idea. It's uh, quite an accomplishment. Sixth century, the lights went out in Europe. I mean, people were walking around. I mean, it was just barbaric. And somehow, in this time, to come up with a chronology that's not too bad, I mean, no Christian holds one for Jesus' birth. But he said one was Jesus' birth, right, in the year of our Lord. So, not bad, right? Of course, he was dealing with contradictory texts between the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew and Luke. Just so you know, I'll tell you something very powerful. The Jews don't have the benefit of being able to have a calendar that's not exactly accurate. Why? Because if we don't have a perfectly accurate calendar, Judaism gets thrown in the garbage. You have no religion. A religion is based on a calendar, timelines, when festivals are. A Jewish calendar, incidentally, is that a solar calendar or a lunar calendar? Yes. How many here say a lunar calendar? Raise your hand. How many say a solar calendar? Raise your hand. How many say it's both? Raise your hand. Well, you guys are correct. Why does it have to be both the lunar and the solar calendar? Jews have a problem that Muslims don't have. Muslims, the Muslim calendar is pure lunar, and therefore Ramadan can come out. There's no myth that Ramadan has to come out in the springtime. Ramadan, that month of atonement in Islam, can come out any time. In fact, every 32 and a half years, Ramadan makes a complete circle around the calendar. Given that the lunar calendar is 354 days, and the tropical or solar calendar is 365 and a quarter days, 11 and a quarter days different, so therefore you lose 11 and a quarter days off the seasons, which are only controlled by the solar calendar. So therefore Ramadan every year goes out a little shorter and shorter. Jews, we don't have it, we never have it simple, right? We always have problems. So our problem is that there's a mitzvah in the Torah that Pesach, which is the first, the 15th day of Nisan, the first month, has to also come out in the springtime. Lunar calendar does not affect the seasons, only the solar one does. So, therefore, if Therefore, a problem, I'll present it to you. If this year, Pesach is April 20th, I'll take it simple, April 20th, this year, Pesach, first day of Pesach, when is it going to be next year? 11 days early, it'll be April 9th. The next the year after that will be March, whatever, March 30th. And then the year after that, it's going to be March 19th. And then the year after that, it's going to be March 8th. And slowly, we're going to be in February. Suddenly, Pesach is coming out in the middle of the winter. Taurus can't do that. It has to come out in the spring. What do we do to deal with this monumental problem? We have to add a month and we intercalate, not a day, like the American. We intercalate, we add in an entire month is put inside. Well, a month, that's 30 days. That's way too much. That slides it back the other way. So how do we figure out exactly when to intercalate that extra... Because there's no mitzvah in the Torah that a, month, a year has to have 12 months. It doesn't say it anywhere. You don't have that 12 months. Just it's based on the month, on the moon. This is right in the beginning of Genesis, but it doesn't have to be 12 months. It doesn't say anywhere. So what do you do? What do we do to figure out how to put it in, not put it in, when to do it? There's a piece of information that the, that the Jewish people had to possess in order to know the precise length of what's called a synodic month or a lunar month. 
but you, it's because they're producing a calendar that goes over for thousands of years, it wouldn't be enough to have one that was pretty close, like the Americans have, like the world has today. It has to be precisely accurate. It has to be exactly accurate. And the Gemara says, the Talmud, say it's, we'll say it's 1,800-year-old document, says that based on the oral Torah, the oral tradition, the Gemara says in Tractate Rosh Hashanah, the Gemara says that we have it from Moses as part of the oral law, that the precise length of a synodic month, are you ready, is 29 days plus a half a day, which is 12 hours, and of the 13th hour, it's 796 chalakim. What's a chalak? A chalak is an hour divided by 1,080 parts. Why is 1,080 a very useful number to work with? Anybody? Because 1,080 is divisible by almost everything. One, obviously, two, three, four, five, six, eight, nine, ten. It's divisible by anything, so it's very easy to break apart. 796 of 1,080 of the 13th hour, our sages tell us that's the precise length of a lunar month. By the way, if you transpose that to a decimal point, the precise length of a lunar month, according to Talmud, is 29.53059 days. I beg you that when you go home, look up in your Britannic Encyclopedia, read the article on calendars, and they conclude that in fact the precise length is 29.53059, exactly what it says in the Gemara. <laughs> <laughs> Most didn't even come close. The Gregorian calendar that we use today was, had to be correct. The Julian calendar, that calendar, to show you how far off the Greeks were and so on. In, 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 in following um, kingdoms and uh, nations, they, they were so off. The, the Julian calendar that you mentioned earlier, which is roughly 2,000 years old, that by the time 1582 came out, they had to add in, they had to intercalate an additional 11 days. In fact, so in the month of October 1582, we had Gregory the 13th adding in these days just to correct, you know. I, 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 guess, I guess the point being of all this is it's a tree of life, but only to those who hold on to it. Hold on real tight, and thank you very much. Question, gentlemen in the back. You mentioned the term after content. One of my concerns, I had a discussion a few weeks ago with a woman who was a medalist Christian who mentioned, of course, Isaiah chapter 3 and the fact that it uh, fulfills Old Testament prophecy and this is how they try to convert our children. The question is, is there a place that we can go? You know, after I answer the question, you look at chapter 51 or 53, it doesn't say Jesus is going to suffer for sins. It's Israel. But there's so many of them. And she gave me a piece of paper with like a hundred on them. Uh, of, well, what about all these? Is, is there a website? Is there a... Well, I'll now, it's, I, now I can make a plug. So, in fact, uh, the fir- before you hear a thing or see a thing in the Passion, the very first thing, anyone remember the first thing you see? Isaiah 53, verse 4. Those of you who are, want to understand this subject, years ago did a tape series. It has a book with it called Let's Get Biblical. Today, that book and the tape series are the industry standard for understanding and penetrating this. Those of you who are interested in studying this subject and really grasping what is it that Judaism believes and why don't we accept I mean, is it really because of some blindness or is it really a tech? Why were people willing to give their lives not to be converted? You know, why on, on July 15th, when the first crusade came into Jerusalem, and uh, the Jews refused to be converted. 3,000 Jews who refused to be converted were placed into a synagogue. It was 
locked and it was burnt to the ground. Every Jew was killed in Yerushalayim by the French crusade. Why didn't they convert? What did they know? What, what information did they have? Possess? I mean, Jews consider life to be very important. Very important. Health to a Jew, very important. Billy Crystal once said that until he was nine years old, he thought his name was Taste This. So... <laughs> so... You've got to be... You got to be pretty sure. I mean, when you when it comes to burning a thing, you burn alive. Or burn you got to re- you got to really know. I mean, you could say I believe, but when it comes down to it, when a broadsword is placed at your throat, you really, really, really better be sure. And Jews take life very, very seriously. So, what did they know? What did these people know? What access did they have? There are in the series three tapes on Isaiah. There were many, many people that night who were not Jewish, who were there, who became Noahides as a result of that program. I don't think as many people who were not Jewish were affected by a program as that individual. I remember that night like it was yesterday. It was done at the JCC. But you see what happens is when people don't know. You know, you ever you want to fall in love with God, you want to get you want to cry, you want a good cry tonight, do this. Before you go to sleep, you read the servant songs. Isaiah starting from comfort ye comfort ye my people. Nachmu Nachmu Ami. Now, the person who has the Jewish education who understands, see, he's read the servant songs before. He know it's not speaking about Jesus because he's read Isaiah 41, verse 8 and 9, and, and 43, verse 10 and 11, and 44, verse 1, 44, verse 21, 45, verse 4, 48, verse 20, and 49, verse 3. Now, if you read that, it says, Israel, you are my servant. But someone who, like you just said, perfect, Someone who says, I know 53, but yes, do you know what it says in 51? I have no idea. You're going to be vulnerable for apostasy. Do you understand? And it's so delicious because it's so ironic you bring that text up because Mel uses it. And ironically, what is the text about? It's about the reaction of the Gentiles when they see, when the Mashiach comes, and then they behold the Jewish people, that they're not demonic, that they're not satanic. In fact, they're going to be so shocked in Paris. You know what's going to go? They're going to go, <coughs> you know, they're going to put, literally, I'll tell you what Chirac is going to do. Wait, listen. He's going to, he's going to do, it says it right there. He says, so shall he, 52 verse 15. This is, I mean, these are, I mean, I've been on planes and you read it over and over and each time, for those of you who know, you read Yeshaya over each time, you go deeper and deeper and it's a, a love again and you find out how much you love Hashem even more and it's even more, it just becomes so intense. It's so, ah, so you, you 52 verse 15 it says this so shall he cast down many nations kings literally go oh, they'll shut their mouths because of him for that listen to these words for that which had not been told to them they will see and that which they had never heard they will witness and they'll say who the last the question 53 verse 1 me him in saying who would believe such a thing the Jews so low down so low, we thought he was contemptible. He was, he was faces discarded more than a man. And look what he, look what he is, to Israel. And then they'll go, woe to us! And you have a whole chapter of what it is that Yoshka Fischer is going to say. Yoshka Fischer, the foreign minister of Germany, who won't even meet with a Jew in Jerusalem, he'll only meet with Arabs in Jerusalem. You know what Donald St. Clair is going to say? The Canadian ambassador to Israel, who when, he- when Hezi Goldberg was murdered in that number 19 bus, just a few meters away from the Prime Minister's residence, and the family was sitting shiva. There's a town that's called Utopia. It's, it's a little, little town. It's called Betar Elite. 
very holy people lived there. All a very deeply religious community. And the family was sitting shiva. Chazi Goldberg wasn't just anyone. He was not just a Canadian citizen. He fought in the... He was not fought. He, he was a member of the Canadian Armed Forces, which comes as a tremendous surprise to most people who had no idea that such a thing existed. <laughs> so, so, he wouldn't visit him. The family was sitting shiva. So he wasn't just any Canadian citizen. He wouldn't visit him. But you see, Bill Graham, who's the foreign minister of Canada, he had no problem visiting Arafat again and again and again. They, they, they go to the Arabs, that's for sure. What have, they're gonna raise, Bill Graham is going to raise his voice. And they say, woe to me what I have done. The irony is, if I ask you, who is the individual who blew up the number 19 bus? A man named Jara Ali. He worked for Yasser Arafat as a Palestinian Authority policeman. So they go to the guy who he worked for, they won't go to the victim. Shocking. That's what Isaiah three. I hope you've all enjoyed this evening's program as much as I have. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to tell you about revelation.